Well, if you walk into any Christian bookshop at the moment, you're going to find a plethora of books on the church. And again, hopefully you'll see some of them on the screen behind me. These just from my own experience, the books I've either read or heard about, I came up with the following on the church. We've got nine marks of a healthy church. The living church, the purpose-driven church, the deliberate church, vintage church, total church, and the emerging church. And those books occupy a prominent place in any Christian bookshop. And actually some of the leading figures in Western Christianity in recent years have written on the subject of the church. And from the books I've read, from that sort of sample you can barely see behind me, many of them are written with a sense of urgency, out of sort of a genuine concern that there's actually widespread confusion today about church among both those outside the Christian community, but also among Christians today. Confusion about what the church is, according to Scripture. What the church is for, according to Scripture. What its purpose is here on earth. And what it means to belong to the Christian church. And again, just from my own experience of talking to people, both Christians and those without a Christian faith, I think the concern that lies behind a lot of those books, it's well-founded. A lot of the confusion surrounding church today comes from sort of a genuine question many people have. But it's not one everyone expresses. And that question is, does the church really matter today? And does belonging to a church matter today? And that's a huge question for a lot of people. But for the non-Christian, the question is often expressed, for what purpose does the church serve in the modern world? Whereas for the Christian, the question becomes, well, does it really matter whether or not I belong or go to a local church? Because let's be honest, from the perspective of the world that we live in here in the West, the Christian church can look pretty insignificant. See, we live in a world that values impressive people, the powerful, the beautiful, the intelligent. And those aren't the sort of people you generally expect to meet in a church. No, no offence to anyone here. See, for many people in our world, the Christian church is a relic from the past. It's an organisation that was pretty popular once. It lent its name to some pretty questionable things in the past, like the Crusades, like imperialism, like sexual repression. But it's an institution that is now fading away and should be allowed to just die quietly in a corner somewhere. For a lot of people today, the church is irrelevant and unimportant. And I want to say that's an understandable view from people without a Christian faith. But actually what struck me again and again over recent years is that in practice, a lot of Christians have bought into that view of church as relatively unimportant to our lives. And there are lots of reasons for this. On one sense, there are a lot of important things going on out there in the real world, from, from a general election to climate change to worries about the economy. But actually, belonging to a church, committing to a church, often seems quite unimportant. And then there's our personal lives, the things that matter to us. So many things vying for our attention. And there's our loved ones. Often we think, well, well they're, they're more important than the church, aren't they? Our husband, our wife, our children, 
our parents, that our friends and work colleagues, maybe more important to us, is our free time, what we get to do with it, or financial security, how we can achieve that. And our value of the local church often suffers in comparison to those things. And then there's one of the standard evangelical ways of thinking that what really matters is the individual putting their faith in Jesus. And once they've done that, well, it's probably a good idea to go to a church, but it's not essential. As long as you continue to profess faith in Jesus, you don't have to go to church. It's actually not that important, ultimately. Now, don't mishear me on this. The Bible does teach that every one of us has to respond as individuals to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without a personal relationship with Jesus, belonging to any church is actually pretty meaningless. And put bluntly, we are not saved by church alone. The Bible's clear about that. And also I don't want to suggest that those other things I mentioned are unimportant to God or not of value to themselves. Things like family, free time, work. But all too easily, by spending all our time and energy on those other good things, we lose sight of the importance and even of the precious nature of the church and what it means to belong to Christ's church. This morning we're going to spend a bit of time together looking at three of the seven letters the risen Jesus wrote to seven churches in the province of Asia, recorded for us here in Revelation 2 and 3. And if you only come away with one thing from our time in these chapters this morning, I want it to be this. The church matters to the risen Jesus. The church is of utmost importance to him. It is deeply precious to Jesus. See, that's why Jesus gives John this vision on the island of Patmos. That's why he dictated these seven letters to seven churches. That's why he had things to say to these churches and through them to us this morning. See, the risen Jesus is a personal Lord. He is a speaking Lord. And the very fact that he speaks to his people to encourage us, to warn us, to rebuke us, to reveal more of his character to us is actually one of the greatest signs that he loves us. And that is why he writes these letters. And this morning I want us to come away from these chapters with a better sense of what the church is and, what the, and why the church should matter to us according to the risen Jesus. And to do that we actually don't need to look at one of the recent books on the church. It's helpful as many of those are because this morning we're getting the chance the amazing privilege of hearing the words of the risen Jesus himself written to local churches. The words of the first and the last, John tells us in verse 17 of chapter 1. The living one, the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. And the message that runs through all these letters to these churches, through both the warnings and the encouragements, is one that we all need to hear this morning, whether you're a Christian or not. That is the risen Jesus loves his church. It is precious to him. He is committed to his people. 
to seeing them changed and transformed into his likeness. And so to belong to Jesus' church is actually one of the greatest privileges, the greatest gifts we could ever enjoy here on earth. You see, to belong to Jesus' church is to belong to Jesus. To be loved by him and to be precious in his sight. If you're not a Christian here this morning, just look at how much Jesus loves his church. The love we see in these letters. And then respond to his invitation extended to all humanity to join his church by putting our trust in him. And if you are a Christian here this morning, I want to encourage you and look at how much Jesus loves his church because that is how much he loves you and loves each person who trusts in him. Jesus loves his church and a vital part of us understanding who Jesus is is that we actually grow to love the things he loves. And one of those things is the gathering of his people, the community of his people. And again, if you read over all these letters this morning, which we're not going to do, you'll quickly see that actually it isn't always easy, belonging to Christ's church. Because Jesus is clear here that his church on earth will always be a mixed bag of good and bad, of, of encouragements, When we see God changing people, people really loving each other, and also discouragements. When Christians get things badly wrong. When we succumb to to lovelessness, or, or false teaching, or pride. Again, belonging to Christ's church isn't easy. But we still need to see how precious Jesus' church is to Jesus, and actually how precious it is for us to belong to him in the community of his people. Now, in keeping with this morning, we're going to do things slightly differently in the sermon this morning. We're actually going to have three of the letters from the risen Jesus read out to us at intervals, one by one. And then we're going to explore together briefly one characteristic of a local church that Jesus wants us to hear this morning. So to paraphrase one of the recent books on the church, you call this sort of three marks of a healthy church, according to the risen Jesus. And just briefly, when you flick over um, Revelation 2 and 3, you'll see these seven churches in Asia that John's writing to. They're real churches. These are historical, local churches made up of real men, women, and children. But the fact that Jesus gives us seven of them is significant. In, In the book of Revelation, time and again, the number seven refers to completeness. And scholars know there were at least ten churches in the province of Asia that Jesus could have written to here. But he chooses to write to seven to reflect his purpose. That the letters here are letters for his universal church. For the church throughout history, in every time, and every place. So the warnings and encouragements Jesus gives to these seven churches in Asia are warnings and encouragements he gives to each one of his churches throughout history, including to us here today. So if we had time, we'd have focused on all seven of these letters, but we've only got this morning to cover these chapters. So I've chosen to focus on three of them. That's a representative taste of them. The church in Ephesus, the church in Philadelphia, and the church 
in Laodicea. And Daniel assures me he's asked people to read these letters. So first of all, can I get the person reading about the church in Ephesus? That's Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. They like to to come up to the front and read Revelation 2, 1 to 7 for us. I think the first thing we see about a healthy church from the letter to Ephesus is that it is a church marked by love. Because I hope you saw in the letter that Kate read out to us there, the danger facing this church in Ephesus is perhaps a surprising one for many of us. It's the danger of sound doctrine. See, as with most of these letters, Jesus begins with some words of encouragement in verses 2 to 3. And it seems that on one level at least, the Ephesian church had an awful lot going for it. It looked great from the outside. Verse 2 again. I know your deeds, Jesus says, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. See, here's a church that could not tolerate wicked men and false teaching. Verse 6 in the letter refers to the practices of Nicolaitans that seem to have been a sect that taught early Christians to compromise with the pagan world around them, particularly in the areas of eating food, sacrifice to idols, and in sexual immorality. And that teaching was a very popular teaching. It pervaded a number of churches, including the church in Pergamum, you see in verse 15 of chapter 2. But the Ephesian Christians had stood firm against it. They hated the practices of Nicolaitan, Jesus said. And Jesus commends them for it. This is a church that was on guard against false teaching. It was committed to the truth of God's word and to living in the light of it. In many ways, the church in Ephesus looked like a mature and godly community. It even goes so far as saying it would have been the envy of many conservative evangelical churches today. And I say that as a conservative evangelical. But, Jesus holds something against them. And it's clear in verses 4 to 5, it is no minor thing. It is a huge danger facing this church in Ephesus 
and every church like it in history. Verse 4, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. That phrase could be translated equally, you have forsaken the love you had at first. And it refers both to their love of God and their love of one another. It seems that the Ephesian Christians were so accustomed to being on their guard against false teaching and false teachers, they'd lost any sense of love for the God that their sound doctrine was all about. And they were also failing to love one another. They were suspicious of one another. They were just so ready to to let the other person slip up and then they would know they'd said something wrong. A climate of suspicion reigned where love for each other just, just couldn't exist, couldn't thrive. So the risen Jesus issues a stark challenge to this sort of church here. He says that without love for God and for one another, they cease to be a church at all. And verse 5, he will come and remove their lampstand from its place. Jesus is saying here, a church cannot truly belong to the risen Jesus if it is not marked by the love that led Jesus to the cross in the first place. Now again, we need to see that Jesus is not saying that good teaching is unimportant here. If you just glance across at the other letters to places like Pergamum and Thyatira, you'll see just how dangerous false teaching is to any church, just how seriously Jesus takes that. And that's also the teaching of the rest of the New Testament. If we don't know the truth of the Gospel, then we will never know Jesus. We can't know what he's really like. But, if our knowledge of Jesus and of the Gospel doesn't lead us to a greater love for God and a greater love for one another, then that knowledge is useless, Jesus tells us here. A healthy church, says Jesus, is a church marked by love. And again, looking at verse 4, again, where should that love be primarily directed? Should it be directed to God first and then to one another, or to one another first and then to God? Well, the teaching of the whole of Scripture is that those two are inextricably linked. They cannot be separated in the Christian's experience. I remember reading about a father who ended up getting separated um, from his wife with the result that he saw much less of his children, children he was devoted to. And reflecting what had happened to him, he realised that he tried to love his children, but with no thought for his wife and no investment in his relationship with her. And he wrote, I realised that to best love my children, I needed to love my wife. The two couldn't be separated, he discovered. He couldn't choose one ahead of the other without both suffering. And it's the same with a Christian's love for God and for one another. We cannot love one another. We don't even know what love is unless we first encounter the God of love and love and worship Him. See, we need to love God and experience His love for us in Jesus if we're to be able to love one another. 
But equally, we will not enjoy God's love for us and worship him as he deserves if we don't also love one another. God doesn't allow us to enjoy his love for us in a selfish way. Just me and God, no one else. To truly experience God's sacrificial love for us, we have to love others sacrificially. To fail to do that is to forsake our first love. And it's worth saying in passing that a local church marked by this sort of love, a deep love for the God of grace and a deep love for one another, even when we let each other down, that is a local church that the world will find very hard to ignore or dismiss as irrelevant. Jesus calls his people to love God and love one another. And any sound doctrine we have must lead us to greater love. And then let's turn to the second of our three churches, the church in Philadelphia. That's chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. I don't know who's reading to the church in Philadelphia. Peter. And so that second mark of a healthy church, according to Jesus, is a church that perseveres. Because again, I hope you saw that this letter to Philadelphia is a very different letter to the one to Ephesus. It contains no note of disapproval or call to repent. Jesus doesn't mention a particular fault or sin that's afflicting this church in Philadelphia. But I hope we also heard that doesn't mean everything is sweetness and light in Philadelphia. Quite the opposite. Life is a real struggle for these believers. They're already facing the open hostility of the local synagogue. That's verse 9. And as in the rest of Revelation, Jesus warns them of an hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world. Verse 10. And in their immediate context, that refers to an increase of persecution from Rome. So Jesus' message to this church 
comes in verse 11. He says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. And Jesus' message to Philadelphia, it's a message to every Christian today. Hold on to what you have. I am coming soon. Jesus is saying that Christians need to be prepared for life to be a struggle sometimes. And they need to be prepared for belonging to a church to be a struggle sometimes. Belonging to a church will not always be easy and we need to be prepared for that. Otherwise, we'll be tempted just to walk away and give up. Because every local church will face struggles in this world. We face opposition from a world that mocks and rejects us. And we face all the tensions you get when you gather together a group of sinful people and shut the door. See, believers will get things wrong. That's all the way through these letters. They will give in to false teaching, again, all the way through these letters, and they will let one another Dying. There's a reason why Jesus uses the phrase in verse 12. But actually comes up in every single letter of these seven churches. To him who overcomes. Verse 12. There will always be difficulties and obstacles to overcome for Christians. And for every local church, Jesus tells us. And he wants us to know that and be ready for that. And Jesus also knows that the result of all those difficulties and obstacles is that like the believers in Philadelphia, verse 8, you may feel you have little strength to carry on. The end of verse 8, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus knows it is tough living for him. Tough living for him on our own and tough living for him alongside one another. And so he calls us to overcome, to persevere. And how can we do that? What do we do when we feel we have little strength like these believers in Philadelphia? Well, we need to get to know our Lord, the Jesus who speaks these letters And rely on his strength instead of our own. Because other people, whether Christians or non-Christians, they will let you down. But the risen Jesus never will. And if you remain in him, he promises to keep us in the face of a fallen world. That's verse 10 again. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Not primarily a promise to spare us difficulty, but to preserve us and sustain us in the face of difficulty. And alongside that promise to sustain us here and now, Jesus, across these seven letters, never tires of lifting our eyes to the glorious future he has secured for us. That's a theme right the way through these letters. Jesus wants us to know and knows that we need to know that actually there is better 
to come. There is glory to come, Jesus says. Again, just to think of the Apostle Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 15, if it's just for this life, we have put, then, then we're, we're to be pitied. If this is all there is, then, then yet give up. Don't persevere. But Jesus says there is glory to come. He describes it from a number of different angles across these letters. That reward for those who you overcome is to describe variously as the right to eat from the tree of life, chapter 2, verse 7. The crown of life, chapter 2, verse 10. Food from heaven, verse 17 of chapter 2. Our names will be written in the book of life, 3, verse 5. It's a new experience of Jesus in all his glory, 3, verse 12. And the right to sit with Jesus on his throne, 3, verse 21. And you could spend hours looking through the way Jesus talks about the future for those who overcome. The future for those who persevere in trusting in him. It will be a struggle, Jesus says. So get to know the grace and strength of Jesus in the midst of that struggle. And lift your eyes to what Jesus had in store for you in the future. What he has won for you through his death and resurrection. And then the final church we're going to look at this morning is the church in Laodicea. That's chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. So that final mark of a healthy church, according to Jesus, is it's a church that grows in humility. Because Laodicea, this city, it was a wealthy city and a powerful city. And the church in Laodicea 
had taken on too much of the pride of their environment for Jesus' liking. And he is scathing in his rebuke of the Christians in Laodicea. He is crystal clear here. Pride can have no place in a church that belongs to him. Because pride will always render God's people useless in this world. Verse 15, again, I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. In the first century AD, um, hot water acted as a tonic when someone was ill. You would drink from a, from a hot spring, whereas cold water quenched your thirst, obviously, as it does today. But because of their pride, the Christians in Laodicea, they weren't hot enough to provide spiritual healing for people, nor were they cold enough to bring refreshment to a thirsty world. They were useless, Jesus says. And so he threatens to spit them out of his mouth. Their pride was deluding them into believing they were secure as a church. Verse 17. And in his message to them, Jesus calls on them to, to come to their senses, to hear what he's saying, and to repent while there is time. To the Christians in Laodicea, they lived in a pride city. And so do we. We live in a city that is famous for its university, for its cosmopolitan character, for its beautiful location. We live in a pride city. And so we need to guard ourselves against the pride that Jesus talks about here. How can a church guard itself against pride? Well, we need to learn true humility from the risen Jesus. Not to go around saying, well, I'm nothing, I'm worthless. But instead to say, God has lavished his grace and love on me in Jesus. And I don't deserve that. I need to know this God. To know his character, why he would do that. And then I need to humble myself before him. To listen to him. To obey him and to worship him. And if we learn that humility from Jesus, if we humble ourselves before him, then verse 20 contains a precious promise for each one of us and for every single local church, including ours. Verse 20, Here I am, says Jesus. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. Jesus calls us to repent of our pride, to humble ourselves and listen to him, and then we will enjoy a close and joyful relationship with him. We will eat with him. The closest, most intimate thing you could do in that culture. See, a healthy church, according to the risen Jesus, is a church that grows in humility. Pride has no place for people who believe the gospel of Jesus, that we cannot save ourselves, that we needed him to die for us. Pride will render us useless. But if we humble ourselves, Jesus will come to us and eat with us 
and reveal more of his character to us. To sustain us and enable us to live for him here and now. Three marks of a healthy church then. A church marked by love. A church that perseveres. A church that grows in humility. And even limiting ourselves to just three churches, there's so much more we could say about each one of them. But again and again in these letters, Jesus, he urges us to listen to him. Verse 22, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And it's the churches plural. And this message of Jesus is for all churches. We all need to grow in love as the church in Ephesus did, both for God and for one another. We all need to persevere in dependence on God's strength, looking ahead to our reward. And we all need to grow in humility as we understand the grace of God to undeserving people like us. But as we move into a time of intercessory prayer, Then as we celebrate Jesus' death on the cross for us in a time of communion, I just want to finish this time in Revelation 2 and 3 with with the big idea we started with this morning. And if we take nothing else away from looking at these chapters in Revelation, please take this away. Jesus loves his church. The church matters to him. It is precious to him, both across the world and here in East Oxford. That means Jesus loves more than road church. And if you're a Christian here this morning, Jesus loves you. You are precious to him. You're part of the community he died to purchase. And sometimes Jesus will have difficult things to say to us. As often he has difficult things to say to these seven churches. But that is a sign of his love for us. Those whom I love, verse 19, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. He's committed to speaking to us through his word, by his spirit, and to changing us into the people he wants us to be. The risen Jesus loves the church. He loves his people. That's something we need to hold on to, to understand. And then in turn, we can learn from his love to love one another and to display his character to this world.